0: diversity, equity, and inclusion. Those three words seem to have been dominating the landscape this year, as industries and organizations have been re-examining racism and exclusion within their own ecosystems. And if you are part of the international education scene, you'll know international schools haven't been immune from the conversation. Educators and alumni, especially those of color, have been asking for more accountability on a range of issues, including hiring more diverse staff, addressing racism and decolonizing curriculums. But as you'll soon hear from my next guest, he's been focused on social justice work long before it became a trending topic in 2020. Singapore-based Darnell Fine is an instructional coach and classroom teacher who applies radical imagination to the profession of teaching. He has facilitated creative writing seminars and social justice workshops in the US and abroad. In this episode, Darnell and I have a frank discussion on what it means to make international schools the just and equitable places that they can be. We discuss the power of gatekeeping, the need to understand systemic oppression, and the challenge in pushing the diversity conversation forward, especially abroad. It's not the conversation you always want to have, but it's definitely the one that's needed. Welcome to The Chatter. Hey, Darnell, how are you doing today? I'm
1: doing great. I'm
0: I'm so excited that you have hopped on with us today. Um, I think that there is work and and your story will be super interesting to the folks who are listening in whenever they're listening in. And so full disclosure, you're in Singapore. So what's the weather like in Singapore right now?
1: It's always the same. It's, uh, (laughs) I don't even uh, remember what the temperature is. It's just hot or it's raining. Uh, The sun rises at the same time and it sets at the same time every day. Um, So I don't think you do daylight savings time. It's, there there are no seasons. It's the same year round, but it's beautiful.
0: You know, I didn't realize that it's pretty similar year round because I went I visited Singapore for the first time a few years ago in December and you're right. It was but the thing is it it was hot and it was it was humid, but I was coming from the Middle East, so hot is relative (laughs) when you're in the desert. So then I was just like, Oh, oh, it's humid. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) How how long have you been in Singapore?
1: It's been a little over two years now that that my wife and I moved here. So i think two years two and a half years i would say
0: yeah yeah and you're and i assume most people who are in singapore you're in the city part
1: right which is actually i'm out here in the residential area right near the school and and it's funny because i actually wanted to be um, more in the city Um, yeah I I actually didn't want to move to this part of Singapore, but I also at first didn't want to move to Singapore in general because I thought it would be really boring. Um, But I I told my wife that wherever she chose, we can we can live there. And I gave a few suggestions. Those weren't good suggestions, but we live in a really beautiful uh, apartment that is outside of downtown.
0: And so I feel like there's a story there. So let's let's roll back the tape and 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 start with where you grew up, where you came from and really take us to how you even got to Singapore.
1: Yeah. Okay. so we call Atlanta home. Uh, I call Atlanta home, but I was born in Minneapolis, Minnesota. But I moved to Atlanta um, when I was in high school and then I hated it. Absolutely detested it. Uh, left to go to college in Providence, Rhode Island at Brown University. And then decided in a roundabout way that I would go into teaching and went back to Atlanta for five years. Um, prior to that, I hadn't traveled abroad. Uh, In school, I didn't have a passport, anything like that. And uh, a school in London, the American School in London, hit me up trying to offer me a job, and I was lukewarm about it. Uh, Mm. On one of those recruitment agencies, they ask us to rate the schools that we want to have information about. And I rated London like a 1.5 out of five. Okay. It, was, it was very low. I was just <laughs> using those schools as leverage for my current school in Atlanta. So oh,
0: through. You know and what? Then, do do thought, what you got to do. Yeah.
1: So then I was like, I finally warmed up to the idea of London. There was a snowstorm in Boston, so it didn't happen. <laughs> and then we moved to New York, Brooklyn, and then London came calling that next year. And I was in the place to actually travel abroad and got my passport and that was the first time i traveled outside of the states
0: so you've got like you've come at this in a very different way honestly than some of the people that i talk to and know that so if people haven't picked on you picked up your background is in education right um and I, I rarely hear someone and full disclosure, of course, we run a site called the Black Expat. So I rarely <laughs> I rarely hear someone say, Hey, I was looking for opportunities or I was being recruited, an international opportunity came up and it was, I don't even really want to go. I just am using it <laughs> to stay domestic. <laughs> like that never happens. Usually people are like, Oh my God, I want to go to London. But <laughs> you <laughs> seem to be like, I don't want to do it. What what was the what was the hesitation for you? I mean, obviously you, you went to Atlanta and you taught for a while, but what was the holdback?
1: Well, I don't know. Like I, like growing up, I always saw travel as a luxury, uh, something mm. that you needed a lot of money to do and not just um, internationally, but domestically. But you, you see the media. You see different movies like Home Alone and these big families like traveling with all of their family and the tickets. And I don't know, just like the perception that that I had in my head was that that was out of reach. Mm. Uh, But also there was a lot to explore at home just within Atlanta. There's so many different pockets and so many different neighborhoods that i hadn't explored yet and it was like Mm -hmm. why do i need to travel outside of that if i haven't really learned my community yet so even moving from atlanta to new york was a bit of a culture shock moving from new york to uh, london not so much and moving from london to singapore not so much but uh, moving to new york was like traveling internationally and i think if that move didn't happen first I think it would have been a lot tougher for that transition, but I really didn't have an interest in traveling internationally. Uh, Maybe some of it was fear or maybe Mm -hmm. some of it was, I felt an obligation to work with the, uh, with the communities that kind of instilled a critical consciousness in me. Mm -hmm. Um, But I haven't examined it too much. I think I did more critical reflection once I moved outside of the States and the guilt and the mm-hmm. shame I felt when
0: leaving. So I think you brought up two very distinct kind of threads. I want to follow down actually. The first is what you said about, you know, looking at a movie like home alone or, or, or just what the media puts out. It reminds me of a conversation I had with a, an author once um, where we talked about, for her, she grew up in New York, but and her, her mom, I think, is from the Caribbean, but she, that's was her limited travel. Just even in the media, when you look at travel, so forget expatriation, right? Just travel. So few, I mean, there are very few stories that even center around black and brown characters. Mm-hmm. Right? Just and and I'm and I'm not talking about the serious we're fleeing from conflict kind mm-hmm. of stories. We don't have generally a black or brown Home Alone, right? No, no. We don't have a we don't have a black or brown Roman holiday, like <laughs> we don't. <laughs> you know, you know what I mean. And and I think that especially when I think about talking to young people, you know, it's it's not. Some of these things do seem like foreign concepts because. We haven't seen anyone do it. If you didn't know anyone doing it, and it was normalized, it was just—I never considered it because it—it it just wasn't something around me. And so, I, I think that that's a really interesting point. That I don't know if that's the point you were mm-hmm. trying to go down, but it was—it's a really interesting point that you were making.
1: No, definitely. And even I've been watching a lot of Lovecraft Country. And mm-hmm. And even how travel with the Green Book is centered on, on, uh, in that particular show, it's it's dangerous. It's not. It doesn't feel like a luxury, uh, even with when people have the means to to travel, or mm-hmm. even thinking about the history of travel for Black folks in in uh, the American South or the states. It was. It's mm-hmm. always met with with a search for freedom. And, yeah. and growing up and hearing all of these different stories, like I come from a, my my great my third great grandfather, Samuel uh, Manning, escaped slavery to Oklahoma. And, and mm. that that's a travel story that yeah. doesn't seem like a luxury or or leisure. It seems like for survival. You think about the great migration and and black folks coming from the south and trying to get to Harlem and and Mm -hmm. being met with legal lynching with the Scottsboro boys. Like it's, Mm -hmm. I I think there's, there's a lot of fear, um, like in my history related to travel. And there's a lot of, um, like facing, facing different structures that keep you from traveling even with the bus Mm. boycotts in the South. So I, I I recognize that history. And and I know that history is connected to me in in a Mm -hmm. lot of different ways, even if it's not, explicitly recognized in my own experience. Um, wow. So yeah, definitely. So those, those were the only things that I was confronted with in school. And then when I looked at travel from the standpoint of, of leisure, it was really based on family reunions and going mm-hmm. to these different parts around, <laughs> around the country. And it's yeah. like, if you're not going to commune with family or your community, then there's not really a purpose of traveling.
2: Hmm.
0: So then tell me, what was it that got you to go to London finally?
1: So I think, I think there was a feeling that I missed out on something. I remember um, going to a job fair in Atlanta, downtown across from the street from the Fox theater and these different schools really not paying me attention And just, you know, being borderline disrespectful. And (laughs) one of the organizers to the fair was like, what are you doing here? Like, why are you here? Like, London is waiting for you. She was like, you shouldn't be here. Like, they're going to pay you. They're going to to take care of you. Uh, Five minutes into being at the fair, I get a call from the head of school in London basically saying, we want you to come. Like, wow. what, what are you doing? <laughs> um, so it just happened to not have worked out. But uh, I think moving to Brooklyn was my first independent school experience.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: it was so – I learned a lot. But it was such a culture shock. Like when, once you kind of pull back the curtain and you mm-hmm. – Move beyond the glossy veneer of these institutions, and you start to see what they're really offering. And they're it's it's nothing special. It it, it might cost more, and right. and it might be more expensive than public schools, but they were still teaching curriculum from the 1970s, right? right? And, and that was that like I don't know, like that kind of. That kind of that was unnerving and disconcerting. So mm-hmm. when London came calling again, and I was dealing with all of the microaggressions in that particular institution, I I said, why not? Like, why not try something different and move on? Um, so that that was a big reason why we we decided to just go for it. I talked to my mom first because. I knew it was that the school calling. I didn't pick up at first. I saw the number, uh, the London uh, area code, whatever you call it, pop up on my phone. I didn't pick up. Uh, yeah. But I called my mom and I said, I think this school from London is calling me. And she said, you need to go. She said, don't stay around. Like, do something different. You need to travel, go, explore, and I called him back and I said, all right, let's talk. I'll meet you in Boston and we can have a conversation about this. And, and it just evolved from there.
0: And so what, what was it that you were teaching once you got to London?
1: Um, I, it, it, seventh grade social studies. Okay. You know. And, I, and I think how long? It might, actually, no, it was seventh grade English and language arts. I eventually went to social
0: studies. I personally shout out to social studies. That was my favorite (laughs) subject. No. And you know what? And I'm going to get into this moment and I'll say this. I had, I hyped this, this man who's since passed away, God bless him, Ed Carmo. I had such a good social studies teacher in middle school who just the passion of what he taught and and the way he taught and the way he made it interesting, I think it's part of the reason that why many of my peers, even so many years later, have such a good grasp on when it looks at political systems and looking nice. at country and geography. I mean, obviously we were TCK kids, so we we do have a handle on geography mm-hmm. as a basic level. But I think just even the conversations that I have with my friends up to this point. I mean, we're talking 20, 30 years later, right? Where because he had such an awareness of how important it was to teach kids who are living internationally to have a good grasp of what's going on. I mean, I think that's one of the most underrated subjects, especially given the certain current, current political situation in the U.S. ever. Because I've worked with kids since who are like, why do I have to learn social studies? Why is it important? <laughs> and uh, now it's a clearly, <laughs> clearly important why you need to understand what's going on. And so you if you're teaching in the uk and up to, up to that point obviously you've taught in the u.s um were you you said in atlanta were you teaching in public schools
1: yeah yeah i was teaching at a um, a school in a neighborhood called grant park or kirkwood uh-huh. i don't know they they had two separate campuses uh, okay. but yeah the school in london was also an independent school
0: okay and so um what, what what did you notice off the bat? Obviously, you've been teaching in the United States. So what was the difference in terms of teaching now in the UK? Did you Were there any noticeable differences, obviously, now that you're in an international school setting, or was it very similar?
1: The culture was different. Like, even at the independent school in New York, like those kids, like I remember a time in which like this car or this bus ran into a car, like down the block from my school. And I was teaching sixth graders at the time and I saw three of my sixth graders like standing on the corner uh, calling the police and describing the, uh, the bus or whatnot, and there it was like a level of maturity. Like like these kids, these kids could take care of themselves. Like, Clearly, like they were good. Like to the point where they did some reckless stuff. One of my students. Went into the bodega and went back to the beers and like chugged a beer or (laughs) whatnot. Like like these kids were like these kids had an awareness of their surroundings almost to a fault. Like you shouldn't even have been back there by yourself, right? But the kids in London, I think, there was a um, they had they the school was over resourced. It's an over resourced institution. And I think Mm. that led to some learned helplessness when it came to when it came to critically thinking. Uh, I I met some absolutely amazing kids. um, But the expectation and I I have stories upon stories of this, but the expectation was that they shouldn't be doing the heavy lifting when it came to the thinking and I was supposed to be the one to do that for them. And it wasn't with Mm. all kids, but it was noticeable where I had some of my kids in Atlanta. uh, We didn't have resources. We had two Acer laptops to pass (laughs) around a classroom of 30 kids and we were expected to teach research I remember having to go to eight different libraries in two different counties with two different (laughs) registered cards to get the books I needed to help teach them. And they did some amazing things. Like there there was one kid named Omari who did this research project on – freedom movements in Rwanda and connected Mm. that to the American South and then connected that to what he was seeing in the present day and then connected that to the Holocaust and how the UN responded Mm. to those atrocities during the Holocaust and the questions that he was posing and the connections he was making between the freedom fighters in in Rwanda as well as the uh, ones from the American South. Him organizing mm. field trips, and this was a student in special education, um, mm. and, and just to witness kind of the engagement and and the critical thought he was engaging in, and not just him, all of my students uh, from that particular school, uh, and, and this is a low income school that didn't have uh, any resources to go right. around, right? And then to get to a school like uh, in London where. Everyone has a laptop, and mm-hmm. and the class sizes are smaller. And it was like pulling teeth sometimes with getting kids to dig a bit deeper. And it wasn't mm-hmm. this. It wasn't the students' fault. It was,
2: mm-hmm.
1: I think, the level of miseducation that that can happen in these independent schools.
0: Mm. You're talking, and I I'm flashing back to my my days of working with K-12 students. And I think about a student that I had similar, just as brilliant as that young man you were talking about who top of her class, I mean, it was like a family of like seven, right? In section eight housing, no computer. And and, and we often forget- even though we are in these quote, quote, developed countries that there's so many people who don't have access to resources who every day, because they didn't have Internet and they didn't have a computer, would walk to the public library and her and her someone of her family would always go with her mm-hmm. because their their neighborhood was so rough. And at one point, as a as a younger child, when I met her, she was in high school. She'd been shot my stray bullet and would just, you know, and if they couldn't get, you know, they'd use the two hours on the computer. And then if they couldn't, if she needed more time, you know, someone would stream with the little data they had on their phone. And, and so it makes me, I I'm very curious and I feel like often this question gets asked, particularly of, of black American educators, um, you know, why, I guess where I'm going with this is how, from your perspective and your experiences, knowing that you came from the populations that you worked with, how did it feel emotionally then to be working with these populations where you can see both ends of the spectrum and yet you're expected on the higher end of the, of the resource spectrum to do more when yeah. really there is more. Yeah.
1: De- uh, definitely. Um, at the end of the day, kids are kids. And all kids are dehumanized by, by these systems of oppression. Um, mm. But to say that they're equal, like, that's, that's not a fair comparison. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a lot of guilt knowing that I wasn't in my community in Atlanta working with the uh, population, my, my community. Mm-hmm. And in coming from an activist and an organizing background, um, not working with those, there's there's a sense of shame, like moving on from my school in Atlanta to these different schools that were like over-resourced
2: mm-hmm. um,
1: that made me feel guilty. But at the mm-hmm. same time, um, I, I come from those neighborhoods that are that are um, under-resourced, that mm-hmm. are over-exploited, that are ignored, mm-hmm. and, and folks are marginalized.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: when I look at my students, I think, what I what would I want for them? Mm-hmm. And if it's for them to feel uninhibited, where they're not uh, immobilized in very concrete ways, where they can do whatever it is they wish to do in life, I would want that for them. And Mm -hmm. and I want that for myself, knowing that that's where I come from. Uh, So at the same time, that's been uh, something that's helped reconcile me not being at home, so to speak, in the States, Mm -hmm. working with uh, the communities, uh, communities of students who look like me and, and a community of teachers who also look like me. Um, So it's helped me grow a lot. Um, I remember in my classes in Atlanta, really talking to my students about being global citizens and having a global perspective. And as an Africana studies concentrator in undergrad, that diasporic lens is something that I carry with me everywhere. Um, Hmm. But I also remember Marcus Garvey wanting to lead back to Africa movements And never making it to Africa and and how like that resonated with me that I don't want to talk about being a global citizen. I want to be a practitioner of of global citizenship where and and not citizenship. I hate that word, but just Mm -hmm. being able to step out of my comfort zones and to see more of what's out there. So there's that. But I also can't lie. Like these (laughs) schools weren't compensating me the way that they were supposed to compensate me. Right. Uh, Like straight up, I was being heavily underpaid. And as a black teacher in a profession where we're already underrepresented Mm. to have folks with less experience than I am or folks that I'm actually coaching and mentoring. Getting compensated more than me—that's problematic. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I feel like there's always this intellectual exploitation in these like institutions where we're expected to sacrifice our well-being, mm. um, our in our livelihoods for the good of community. And at some point, like that's not enough. Like you have to compensate me as you would anyone else in a similar position as me. Otherwise it's starting to resemble a lot of the different systems that I swore (laughs) to push back against. Uh Um, So London took care of me more, more than they had to. When I first got to London, they ensured that I was settled in appropriately. And and it it wasn't them just doing it out of the, like them just being generous and giving from their heart. It was because I asked and demanded because of prior history of me being uh, undercompensated. So Mm. um, that was a big incentive of moving also.
0: You know, and, and here's the, here's the thing. (laughs) You hit on it in terms of the 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 work and the labor, particularly Black educators put in, right, and 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 the compensation and whatnot, and even the guilt. And I always I always wonder this is that like I've asked you that question. Obviously, you're a Black educator, but I don't think anyone ever really asks just because they're the majority, white American educators who go abroad. You know, why don't why don't you stay in the U.S.? Right. Mm-hmm. And why don't you support the community? You have plenty of communities that have need. Right. Yeah. It's uh, this is a question that I always hear. And I you know, and people have their their different reasons. And, and obviously, I think for if you are a black man or woman um, and you teach abroad, at some point you are reconciling that there are people who look like me who need help at home but i i always wonder we never ask that question of those who are in the majority because mm-hmm. we assume that if you're black you're going to be the one that's going to go in and save the system, not recognizing this is mm-hmm. going to take a collective effort just because of what you said. There's Definitely. so much need. And there are only so many people of color, right. Mm-hmm. That we've, we've all got to do the heavy lifting for these, for these kids to be able to get to where they need to be and for systems to change. Um, but yeah, I, I, I know it's not an easy thing to really, to really work through too, because I, I could see what the guilt is, especially since you came from that background and 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 that's who you work with. But I'm glad you're getting that money, though. Because <laughs> look, I told folks you all got student loans and stuff. You need to you got to retire at some point. Fight, fight look, the good fight, but don't be broke.
1: <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not a capitalist by any means. Like I, I'm, I'm good with just living and uh, in, in, uh, getting my basic needs. But at the same time, I recognize (laughs) that that's what you value. And if right. you're valuing it like a matter of principle is that right. nah, you're not going to pay that other consultant six thousand dollars an hour to have a conversation with her and then right. look at me and be like, hmm, do this for free. <laughs> no, nah, like that's not like Man. that's not gonna just by a matter of principle. Right? <laughs> like right. and it and it doesn't even have to be money. It like there there are other forms of currency that like, if you're if you're not speaking to me the way that I think you should be speaking to me, I'm going to uh, call you out about that. Um, so, like, respect. As, and I, and I, I don't subscribe to respectability politics either. But I know if you do and you're affording someone that respect, you right I, you're going to give me that respect and I'm going to demand
2: it.
0: Absolutely. Because you should, if you are willing to do it for person A, then you should be willing to do it for person B. And and ever so much, I think we don't always, I think that you clearly do now, but I don't think we collectively always value how much work we put in and how much Mm -hmm. effort we put in. And then we end up doing so much and giving so much labor away for free. Mm -hmm. And then Not only... You're right. We get burnt out. It affects our mental wellness. And you don't have anything to show for it, right? Even if it is a little bit more money or some kind of recognition or whatever. And so um, with that, we're going to take a break, but when we come back, this is a great light, like segue into your DEI work, which I really want to get into because that's been the hot topic of this year, Um, (laughs) even though it's been your jam the whole year, (laughs) the whole time, (laughs) but uh, we'll be back. All right. Great segue. Um, you know, really talking about diversity. And so, as you know, I mean, I think you have to be living under a rock. There there are two big conversations, well, I guess three if you count the U.S. elections (laughs) that have been happening this year. Obviously, COVID is one, but the other has been the killing and the murder of George Floyd, which sparked protests globally. And this has just been a topic that has made its way into many of the episodes that we've recorded thus far. But one of the things that seemed to be this, I don't know, national, international conversation was really looking at diversity, equity, and inclusion, which I know is very close to your heart. And this is work that you are very involved in and a strong advocate for. Um, And so can you talk a little bit about doing DEI work on the international stage. Often, you know, we think about it, at least here in the U.S., but I don't I don't even think folks realize that this is stuff that people are doing and really pushing for when you kind of look at the world globally. Yeah, yeah,
1: definitely. Um, And and I'm not new to these conversations just because Mm. uh, of George Floyd. Like these like George Floyd is is an incident that happened in the context of 400 years in the United States, over 400 years in the United States. Uh, And oftentimes we look at these as singular events when it's existed ever since I was born, uh, all the way back until 1619. Um, So when we talk about these incidences or these events, um, looking at them in a wider context of not just historical injustices with with uh, black folks in the United States, but a historical catastrophe that continues to go on and on and on. Um, so my whole teacher education program in, in my degree in undergrad was predicated on looking at diversity, equity, and inclusion through the lens of the uh, folks in the African diaspora. Um, so... I think people are arriving to this conversation internationally. But my lens in my pedagogy as an educator has always carried an international Pan-African lens. And it's always considered issues of equity um, in the curriculum. So it, it's, it's not new to me. Uh, it's something that I've always done. I see it as being integrated. In any classroom that I've been in internationally, I think um, folks are starting to have this conversation. Um, when I first arrived in London, uh, the conversation was happening, but I did a lot of work um, advancing the conversation and leading different workshops, professional learning, uh, starting affinity groups with underrepresented groups in the middle school and the high school Um helping start parent affinity groups,
2: uh,
1: uh, doing work with board committees, uh, a whole lot. And mm-hmm. I started to reach out beyond the confines of my my school that I was teaching in to other institutions. And I've continued that work here in Singapore, where I've done a lot of DEI work within our institution, but I've also been reaching out to different schools and different educators in Africa, Europe, the Middle East, uh, Southeast Asia, Asia, uh, Latin America. Um, So the work continues and it will always be there. I see it as something that you can never disconnect uh, Mm. from uh, teaching and teacher education.
0: And so uh, even though, obviously, George Floyd became a trigger and as you've said you've been doing this for a long time what do you think are some of the challenges right now for people to really pivot and really think critically about what it means to be inclusive because you've obviously you're doing work around the globe but what is it where, that you see where folks obviously make the, the disconnect or aren't aren't making these spaces as open and as available and as accessible as they could be does that does that make sense yeah, yeah that makes perfect
1: yeah. sense um and i think a lot of times people would say that it's based on lack of education and ignorance and i think that's false like folks know what's happening like you mm-hmm. ask mm-hmm. you, you ask some of these folks you you want to be black for a year uh they, they're not trying they're not trying to be black like they're trying to uh Dibble and dabble in black culture, but they're not really trying to live the black experience because they know they know that that there is no part of the globe white supremacy hasn't touched. Uh, And and I'm not just talking about white folks. I'm talking about anyone Mm -hmm. who subscribes to Mm anti-blackness. And I've traveled all over the world, even when there's all-black communities in West Africa, there's Mm skin-lightening creams. Or Mm -hmm. even when you're going to places in South Asia, there's skin-lightening creams. Uh, And Mm -hmm. just how I'm treated in these different places and how my partner is treated in these different places around the world. Um, Anti-blackness is global. um, And I think people who, deep down, They know even if they don't want to admit that that white supremacy is pervasive. Um, I think the reason why people don't engage in disrupting those systems is because the systems were designed to uphold uphold uh, uphold structures that privilege them and that Mm -hmm. sustain their livelihood and that are responsive to their culture. Um, I think it's purposely designed to create an underclass uh, Mm -hmm. in different parts of the world. If you look at who is employed as domestic help in these different countries that are uh, black and brown, Mm -hmm. uh, they're not going to look they're not going to be white men in in those positions. They're most likely going to be black and brown women uh, who are employed in those particular positions. Uh, And that's the way the system is designed to make And that's just one example, but it's to maintain uh, a dominant culture and to maintain um, maintain white supremacy, maintain patriarchy, uh, maintain a a middle and upper upper middle class or the 1% like all of those systems of dominance are dependent on inequality, lack of diversity and exclusivity.
0: And, you know, I think one of the pieces I don't know if people want to be obstinate or not, because I'm totally nodding my head as you're talking is the thing that's so insidious, I think, about white supremacy is that people don't seem to completely understand that it's a system. So Mm -hmm. that even if you individually may not actually be prejudicial or racist, you can still benefit from a system that is. And if the system is working properly, right, all it has to do is have you continue whatever the the tool of delivery is, Mm -hmm. even if you yourself are not prejudicial. And so when you talk about anti-blackness, like, I just don't think people really get to understand or at least some folks understand the level and the deepness of it because the skin lightning creams drive me nuts right Mm -hmm. i grew up in west sub-saharan africa i grew up in west africa and and colorism which has always been an issue i think in any kind of black or brown community just gets taken to another level and so You know, I see some of these same companies and I've called them out on social media where they've got these great campaigns in North America. Right. Because, Mm -hmm. of course, it'd be very weird to say, hey, you know, you need to lighten your skin or whatever, who go to these, quote, unquote, developing countries and are also selling products for which people would lighten their skin because and, and perpetuating this idea that the lighter you are, the better you are, the more opportunities, which in some cases you may have. And I but I wonder, even with your background and with your training, do you ever get pushback from folks when when you want to? kind of impart this information where they feel like, oh, you're just American, right? So you're coming from the U.S., we don't have that issue here, or that's not our perspective. Amanda, all the time.
1: (laughs) I had somebody
0: tell me that when we talk
1: about people of African descent, that's an American thing. And I was like, how? (laughs) It it says African. (laughs) People of African descent. Um, But people see, I think, because the United States is such a beacon of white supremacy in this world power, they see these conversations as being very American centric. Mm. Um, But but it's not like white supremacy is global. Anti-blackness is global. Like I can point to a number of different a number of different um, examples. But if you just do a scan of websites of Mm -hmm. who's teaching in these different international schools. What do they Mm -hmm. look like? And and sometimes Mm -hmm. students will come and interview me about my experience. And I I ask them, if all of your teachers and all of the leadership look like me in these American schools, because I'm American,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: would your parents send you to this school? And they look at me and they say, no, absolutely <laughs> no. <laughs> not. So when you see these international schools that are saying that they want American teachers, there's right. a phantom implicit racial modifier of white that sits in front of American. And that mm-hmm. phantom racial modifier uh, is just one example that shows how anti-blackness and white supremacy work in these different international settings. Go um, I- so Go ahead.
0: I was going to say, I'm sure you've seen the articles, the posts. I mean, I saw one about a recruiter who did it unnamed about the recruiting practices, particularly when it came to, you know, diversity and how, you know, if you, the way that they would market, it would be biased against those who are coming from non-Western countries. And then um, English wasn't their first language, which of course took out a whole bunch of other people. And then students really talking about the the struggles that they, in, that they endured or that they saw not being in the majority and, and, and full disclosure, it wasn't necessarily just black, right? It could be mm-hmm. within different other groups. And so, yeah, I mean, even just recruitment, I mean, talk a little bit about that. Just talk about, uh, in terms of teachers and staff, because I think that's super important. That last point that you made.
1: Yeah. All right. Okay. So just this idea of, of Western is a European import, like that's a European mm-hmm. invention in a certain type of, of Europe we're not talking about right. Caribbean British folks like inventing right. that we're talking about white Europeans and by extension white Americans that that come from Europe um, mm-hmm. so like West is just code for for whiteness and mm-hmm. and when I talk about anti-blackness um, black folks don't need to be in the room like I, I talk about anti-blackness as a political concept. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is the uh, ontological opposite or, or or polar opposite of whiteness. And when I talk about whiteness, I don't mean white people like I can reinforce and perpetuate whiteness in, mm-hmm. in, in the language that I use. I can reinforce whiteness in the curriculum that I choose to teach. Mm-hmm. So even in uh, organizations that are people of color led and there are mm. no white people in the room. Though They can still be agents of white supremacy, just like Mm -hmm. if you're in India and you're dark skin uh, and and there's a lighter skinned Indian uh, person and you're looking at colorism that can still reinforce uh, anti-blackness. So I'm I'm not only talking about um, the folks that are in the room and and Mm -hmm. sometimes people get it twisted where we say we can't have conversations about race with all white students. Uh, even if all of your students are white, you can still engage in these concepts because they are uh, black folks, indigenous folks and people of color are still present in their imaginations and they're still present mm. in the curriculum, in the written curriculum. So it's still important to engage in these conversations from the standpoint of recruitment. You see a lot of um, a lot of it embedded in very subtle ways in and in. Mm. In the job applications and what you're expecting, if you're asking for a non if you're asking for a native English speaker, what does that mean? If if language is is a window into culture in English was often a tool for colonization from Mm -hmm. the West. Uh, And you're saying someone has to be a native English speaker. Who does that exclude? You went and colonized all of these different countries, forced them (laughs) to speak English so that they can survive in this economy. That's your economy. That's a global economy. And then you're saying, we don't want you. So it's, it's (laughs) a euphemism for white. That's what you're looking for. Uh, And it shows up in a lot of, other ways in in recruitment, and I understand how the game goes. I benefit from being one of the tokens in these different institutions because I know mm-hmm. that I would not be as sought after if I if if there were more people who looked like me. And I also mm-hmm. know that because I've assimilated and acculturated myself to the standards of whiteness and Ivy League degree. Uh, Being able to speak like this, uh, Mm -hmm. being able to be culturally competent in white culture, more so Mm -hmm. than other white people, has Mm -hmm. given me the privilege of being able to gain access and navigate these different institutions.
0: And you know what? I don't think people really understand when, when they find the quote unquote black person or brown person, how much code switching assimilation preparation has happened right and i have talked about this about my own life and i've i've said this to folks all the time i mean half the reason any of y'all listen to me is because i sound like this (laughs) i've said i mean i say uh, the words that are coming out my mouth (laughs) are what they are but because they are in a way that is palatable to you Mm -hmm. you're listening right and Obviously both of us are highly educated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we can I'm sure that both of us can code switch in whatever respective community that we need to be, depending on who we're talking to. But you're right. I don't I don't think folks let me not say folks, the majority that's in positions of power actually recognize how much work goes into this, because the truth of the matter is, is that if I sounded different, if you didn't have an American passport, right? If you didn't have the certain mm-hmm. education, you could be saying the same things and no one's going to listen because you're, yeah. not, you're, you're not going to be at the table. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it, it, we often measure we often use language to measure intelligence. Yep. Uh, and is that to say that someone who doesn't speak English and they speak Russian uh, isn't competent in some of these same skills? Uh, and, if, and if it's true, if it's Russian, of course, Russian. But let, let's take it a bit further. Let's talk about Black English vernacular, African-American uh, English vernacular. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could be saying something brilliant but if you say it, it in a Black English vernacular, uh, in Black English vernacular, or even in a regional dialect coming from the South, if you have right. your Southern drawl coming, right, um, you're automatically going to be discounted and seen as being less intelligent. And, and a lot of folks subscribe to that. A lot of folks say, "Oh, you're just mad because I can speak intelligently." Uh, the, Purpose of language is being able to communicate a message and communicate an idea. Just because right. you impose grammar rules on language doesn't make the ideas any less powerful or intelligent. And um, it's not just language. It's these, these like codes of professionalism or these respectability politics that we have to code switch into in mm-hmm. order to gain access to these institutions. And mm-hmm. sometimes what I struggle with is how much of myself am I losing and how much of another culture am I internalizing without even knowing it? Or, or mm. would, like, like it's, it's like that frog that is being boiled in <laughs> lukewarm mm-hmm. water and, and the water is getting hotter and hotter. Like at what point are you taking the temperature of your surroundings and realizing that, oh, I might be, too deep into this or I might be too lost into this and and I don't know anymore maybe I've reached a threshold where I'm assimilated and and, and this is who I am now especially because I haven't been back to the states in a few years now I don't know like I I don't know
0: Hmm. I mean it's here's the thing you were talking about recruitment and I was thinking to myself you know, you're someone who works in an international school, and one of the things that we love to talk about with international schools is that we're raising global citizens, quote unquote. We're in, a, you know, we have this melting pot of the model U. S. Whatever the terms are these days, I don't know. This is back from when I was in the international school. And then I'm hearing you speak, and I'm thinking, okay, we have that, and we say that for our students, but then why doesn't our our faculty and staff reflect yeah. that?
1: Yeah and just. Because that, you, yeah, yeah just
0: because you're in an international
1: school. Come like, speak that speak, speak that speak. I know what like, you're gonna say. <laughs> because, like you could sit comfortably in your classroom and then and then drive to your compound and be surrounded by other Western teachers and then do that throughout the whole year. And, and you're like, oh, yeah, I'm I'm a global citizen. And then you go on vacation to another country and then you go and you stay at the resort and you don't interact <laughs> with any of the locals. And you're like, look at me. I'm going to post on social media that I have oh, lord the- you have not been to that country. You've been to the resort that is housed in that country You're at the school whose host country is that country. But like that does not (laughs) automatically equate to you becoming a global citizen. Whereas these students that are black and brown and indigenous uh, Mm -hmm. uh, students in the states have to navigate so many different cultural ways of being within the United States. I feel like that's more of a global lens than some of what these teachers experience that don't actually interact with the folks in their surroundings.
0: You know, and I've brought this up with educators before, and so I don't care. It's probably <laughs> beating a dead horse at this point, but I'm still break it up because it's, it's it's seriously it's important to me. Um, I don't know why we ever always assume that just because someone's an international educator that they have a global mindset. Mm-hmm. I don't know why we think because someone left wherever they left and they're now in this country that Mm -hmm. they have this diverse way of thinking and perceiving and that they are sensitive and and aware of their own biases. Right. Because Mm -hmm. we just have this assumption. I'm like, but it's patently false because <laughs> I yeah. know enough I know enough educators of color and they're not necessarily black but I know enough educators of color who've been like, no 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 no. <laughs> mm-hmm. I have worked in international schools with administrators who are quite frankly, I would say, racist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> May not even realize that they're racist. And so yeah we just uh, to your point we just assume because somebody got on a plane and oh they're they're no longer in Iowa <laughs> mm-hmm. that they are they are this diverse person and that's not necessarily the case yeah there's
1: yeah. Uh, uh, a saying that I use uh, that is an African American proverb that says all skin folk ain't kin folk <laughs>
0: yeah. it- I have I- I'm laughing because I've got my own uh, African American proverb that I'll share in a moment, which I like to say from those great philosophers: "Crime mob, knuck if you buck." But carry on, <laughs> carry on.
1: But along those same lines, not all international teachers are internationally minded, um, and, and just because of your locale and, and where you're you're at physically in the world does it mean that your mindset has shifted? Um, and and it's, it's similar to those teachers who say, I work in inner city schools. Oh, God. Like, do you really know the students that you're working with? Like, just right. because you're working in an inner city school, are you living that life? And are you truly seeing your students for what they bring to the classroom? And, and hmm. I, I, I think so often... Uh, teachers come to these different international schools and they look for safe havens uh, that that reflect their home culture and, and, uh. and their home countries. They they join the, the Swiss club and the, uh, the American club and the British club in these different in these different countries or. They have a cohort of folks from the countries that they come from. And by all means, I believe in affinity groups. But at Uh some point, if you're really adapting and and interacting with diverse cultures, um, you're going to step out of that comfort zone and you're going to um, and you're going to grow yourself with the folks that are from the places that you live in Um, and not in tokenistic ways, in, in ways where you're truly learning how to integrate uh, what you're learning from the, um, your, your surroundings and your host country into your daily practice.
0: And so I guess then my question is, as you're doing this work and as someone who's passionate about it, what are some of the ways you feel like DEI initiatives could be implemented, whether it's in an educational setting or beyond, especially when you're working in an international space?
1: Definitely. Um, first off, I say all that to say that when I'm engaging in anti-racist work in international schools, I do ground it in an American context. And the response is always, this is American, we're international.
2: And I was like, oh,
1: it's funny that you want to point out that this is an American-centric thing. But where was that same critique when the hiring was happening or when the curriculum was <laughs> happening? was being created and designed, or when such and such and such and such. And I was like, it's like, we have to have that lens mm-hmm. so that we're, we're critically examining the hierarchies that exist within our institutions. Um, mm. But beyond that, um, the way that I engage in this work is to engage in critical reflection. In critical questions. Uh, A big part of critical race theories is is letting folks tell their story and Mm -hmm. and gathering the counter stories so that people can bring their own funds of knowledge to the different workshops that they're attending. So I try as much as possible to incorporate, uh, incorporate critical reflection uh, Mm -hmm. where participants have the autonomy to share their own story. Um, Mm -hmm. I not didactic in my approach. at least I try not to be maybe someone else has a different perspective on this that have attended some of my workshops, but I try not to be didactic where I'm imposing my will. I try to come at it through a conceptual framework while also Mm -hmm. still recognizing the histories of the, um, of the communities that I'm working with. Um, So Mm. sometimes that looks at looks like pulling up what black students are saying on Instagram or what local teachers are saying, uh, saying in their meetings about their Mm. experience within the school. Um, And then letting that lead, uh, lead the sessions. Uh, Other times what I've done is I've pulled uh, different pictures and photos of the history of of Western teachers going and quote unquote educating people in the global south or people in black and brown countries and just saying hey here's the history and this is how it links to the concept of of patriarchy or white supremacy or, or imperialism.
0: Mm. <laughs> Oh, man, like I'm unpacking all of this in my mind, and I'm trying, <laughs> I'm trying to visualize how much work that is. Well, let me and, ask you this: like yeah. in,
1: in Cameroon, like you're from, yeah. uh, you you went to school in Cameroon, right? Yeah. Uh huh. Yep. Did your Did your teachers not even talking about the local country, but did your teachers talk about the? Uh, the French colonization of, of the, uh, of your host country or why there was an English side in a French side.
0: Okay. So I will say from my memory being served, no, but this is, this is, this is a, this is actually a good memory. And I've, I've mentioned this to a couple of people that we use an American curriculum. Mm And for my middle school year and then middle school years. And then when I went to high school, I think the first two years, interestingly enough, were in the British curriculum. And the last two years were American to prepare Uh, kids to where they're going. But this is what was fascinating. Um, Great middle school teacher still alive, who was our English teacher. Mm-hmm. And of course, she did the whatever the curriculum was, but I will continue to shout her out because the one thing that she did was we were in Africa, and she made sure she put African writers in the curriculum. She better go. And, and so we had a very specific section, and I, this is not like a week, right? I mm-hmm. remember there was at least a quarter. If we were divided in, in a quarter system, where all we read were African writers across the continent. And so while the curriculum itself, whatever they had to teach according to accreditation standards, <laughs> did not include this stuff, I will say that there were select teachers, particularly in the social studies and in English, right? Who they could have that leeway where they did it. And That's what but got it. And, I, and I, I, it's something that I had, it's funny, I had forgotten about it until someone was talking to me and I went, wait a minute, she technically didn't have to do that, but she had such a reverence for literature in general. And I think that she thought she could not teach us, quote, quote, world literature mm-hmm. <laughs> and African writers not be represented when we were living on the continent. That's what's up. That. That's yeah.
1: what's up. That. Was she
0: white? And that, she was white, and and this was in the '90s, and she was she was older, and she, but she was about it. <laughs> if you saw her, if you saw her, you probably wouldn't think this, but she was she would always be about those African writers, always black African writers showed up, particularly.
1: That is what's up. It, we need, we need more of that in these different schools, in these different institutions. Where um, I think we said we were talking during the break, but. Um, we need white allies to step up as educators to yeah. do that heavy lifting and that work uh, and, and have some skin in the game. So that's what's up. It needs to be ubiquitous within the school. She should have been teaching other teachers.
0: <laughs> and, and, and and she was a veteran teacher. And the thing that I think it's interesting because we're talking about 20 plus years ago, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Is that, you know, and I'm I'm obviously removed from being... Near international schools, the way I used to be, but the thing that I it, it just seems to me that if you are an educator in general, right, it doesn't even have to be international schools because I did teach for a while, that you would find a way to make the content relevant to a student's worldview. And yes. so, a good example is. Once again, I've had way too many careers. But for a for a short for a bat for one academic year, I was living in New Mexico. Yes, it's still part of the US. No, it's not part of Mexico. My God. I'm saying that for the Americans. I feel like everybody else has that straight. It's so wild. I lived in New Mexico and people went, Did you need a passport? And I'm like, it's between Arizona and Texas, but whatever. Um, and I worked in an I worked in an alternative high school and these students were basically a step away from incarceration, right? gang violence, truancy, all this other stuff. And I remember I taught social studies and I go back to how Mr. Carmo, this is the social study teacher that was amazing for me as a middle schooler, made things relevant. And so that's what I try to do with these students who hated school. They hated what they were being taught and I thought, okay, I'm teaching you social studies. How about we talk a little bit about New Mexico in particular, right? Mm -hmm. Talking about many of them had a Mexican identity, right? Because I was Mm -hmm. living in southern New Mexico, so many of them had a Mexican identity um, and, and let's talk about, you know, Latin culture, you know, the things that are valuable to you and, and let's do it in a context that's interesting, right? Like, and I had the students... <laughs> I thought it, this, was, this was like 20 years ago, but it was still a cool idea. I was like, let's make a music video, but let's actually make a music video where you're telling the history of a particular time period. And you guys are telling the history. And so if you want to rap, that's fine. If you want to sing, that's fine. If you want to do interpretive dance, that's fine. But yeah. at least I know that you've done the research and you're like, yeah, let me tell you about some Cesar Chavez. <laughs> you know? that like that's, that's the way I always look at education. So if we take it into the international context, Context, right? I would imagine if you're living in a Singapore or a China or a Ghana or a Colombia, <laughs> you would at least say, We're in this country. Let's at least tell you and let's tell you some writers, or let's tell you at least the basic history so that people aren't just squatting in a country, yeah. they actually know the country a little bit better. Yeah, that's yeah. just me.
1: <laughs> yeah, and that's culturally relevant pedagogy. That's, that's, that's what that's what and villains has been telling us to do for the longest so you have some good instincts you better go back into education Amanda
0: i mean i'm i'm in it i'm just in i'm in higher ed now because you know i look my, my I, I loved high schoolers middle schoolers man y'all doing the lord's work who's working <laughs> with middle school because Whew. But, but but you're right though i and i think it just saddened me saddens me if that International schools, which I think are a beautiful space for some of the stuff, if they're not doing it, it's a missed opportunity. Definitely. I mean, if we're calling them global citizens, make mm. them global, <laughs> <Yeah>. I think.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, 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 won't, I won't even. I won't <laughs> even throw, I won't throw shade. Oh, on yes. that
0: on that term. Nah, I, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I yeah. got somebody else who throws a hell a of lot of shade. <laughs> you know what? And it's a funny. I mean, let's go. You know what? Let's unpack this for a bit because I, I got time. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's an interesting term that the more and more I talk to specifically Black people from a lot of places, not necessarily mm-hmm. American. That term does seem to have the shine that it used to when it first came out. No,
1: not, <laughs> not at all. And it's there was a, um, a professor from uh, uh, UMass Amherst, and I, and I heard her speak. And she was talking about uh, world wars And and she was talking about whose blood needs to be shed in order for a war to be defined as a world war. And she was talking about it's when Europeans engage Europeans in conflict where it's defined as world wars, but different communities were engaging in conflict with these different European nations uh, in these black and brown countries for, for centuries. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't defined as a world war. So it's like when we talk about what is considered global, like what is our point of reference for globalization when a lot of these uh, international schools are part of organizations whose headquarters live in Europe or whose uh, accreditation agencies live in the United States and in and, and their teaching force comes from the United States in different parts of Europe or Australia. Like, can we really consider those to be international schools or a part of global education? And just yeah. the idea of citizenship, like, that deserves unpacking too, because, like, who is a citizen? Like, who is considered to be civilized? And mm-hmm. just looking at the etymology or uh, of citizen and citizenship, and then comparing that to who is not a citizen, who is a barbarian, and who is a babbler, um, like it's it's hella problematic. Like when you think about global citizenship, especially now when people are getting stopped at borders in total. right, <laughs> and, and, yeah, like around the world, like even before the pandemic hit, like mm-hmm. who, who's Whose passport was valued? I know the United States passport do not mean anything right now, but <laughs> right, who is who is uh who was let in and and who is considered like, like when you say citizen, that's often e- like equated with a human being, like who is mm-hmm. considered to be a human being? So, mm-hmm. um, I try not to, I know I've used it a few times here, but I, I try not to use the term global citizen because it. Like so much needs to be um, unpacked in that particular term. And there's like the different implications of that are, I don't know, problematic.
0: No, I mean, I I was going to say, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's real interesting having the American passport during COVID, right? Because I think there's a small taste of what other folks go through. When, it, when you don't have the access to travel, right? Yes. So we're not even talking about means, right? We're not yes. even talking about financial means. We're just talking, oh no, you can't come here because you have that passport. Yep. And the actual, it's interesting watching people actually just be affronted, <laughs> right? And just going, I can't believe we can't go to, in some cases, sometimes even Canada. and And I'm thinking to myself, oh, you have no idea. How so much of the world is like your privilege is showing right now, yeah, because let's be honest, whenever this pandemic, however it gets under control at some point, you'll be able to travel yes you'll yeah. you'll be able to travel. This is temporary. This is not a we have to wait and see if the political system shifts and all these other things. This is just a a blip on the screen for what people have to deal with definitely um. With that, with that being said, because I promise, I, I, I promised this at the beginning, so I want to make sure before we roll out, and I got something left after this. Why didn't you want to go to Singapore? <laughs> you mentioned that
2: oh
1: my early goodness. on. Um, <laughs> I think it was just what I heard about Singapore being a bit sterile, a bit boring. <laughs> but that's exactly what I needed. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not, contradicting. I'm not contradicting that at, at all. Like I, it's, it's not, it's not super, it's not super exciting. Um, but I'm actually a homebody and, and I, I, I don't want to deal with the hustle and bustle of New York or London. Like I love living there. I would like Singapore does feel like a break and it's, and it feels easy and laid back, at least where I live. I'm not going to the downtown area much. Um, So I think it was that, like losing the excitement of London where there was always something happening and going on. But there is, I think, wherever you live, there's a lot there. It's just a matter of um, what are you looking for and and are your expectations... um, I guess, centered on what you're expecting home to be like. And I think London uh, is very similar to New York in a lot of ways, very different in a lot of ways. But I don't know, like, I I love it here. I don't plan on leaving anytime soon. I feel at home, I call Singapore home. It's just that I think transitions can be hard and the, uh, the different unknowns and the bias that you come across in media uh, mm-hmm. to really influence perception. And I think that's with any place. Like, any place, your, your lens is often filtered by those different perspectives on the outside.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: I'll let friends who have lived here, as well as, you know, different things that I watched on, on YouTube and read about kind of influence my perception of, of the country. But you create your own narrative and your own story and your own experience when you move to these different places. And, and I love it. I love it here. Like I don't plan on leaving until they tell me to get out.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, Hey, you ain't got to go home, but you can't stay here. I mean, mean, as of, as of now, when we're recording uh, here and where I'm at, we just opened up early voting. Uh, Trust me, I would kill for some, sterile and some, some quiet because you see the news so you know it's on and popping here in the
2: US.
0: So but before we before we round out um I've been doing something called the lightning round with our guests. Three questions. Okay. You just you just answer what comes to the top of your head. Um, they are not gotcha questions. <laughs> I say that and then people get <laughs> nervous but um, all right so in In the vein of what we've been speaking about, um, what is what is one thing that, as individuals, so not even necessary leadership or uh, or administ- administrators, um, can we do to create a diverse environment? I would say
1: there are people who want to come to these different institutions, but you gotta make the you gotta make the place that you're inviting them into like like safe. You have to make it you have to make it safe. You have to make it inviting. It's like it's not enough to give somebody a seat at the table. You have to serve them something that appeals to their palates and feeds their soul. Um, so if if you're trying to embrace diversity or make your your schools more diverse or inviting diversity, you have to ensure that. You're not inviting them into a culture where you expect them to assimilate, but you're allowing them to be their full selves. And it's safe for them to be their full selves.
0: Mm. OK. Question number two. Taking Singapore, the U.S. and the U.K. off the table, where would you live?
1: Dakar, Senegal. Like I, I love me some mm. Senegal. <laughs> uh
0: <laughs> Okay.
1: And and folks in Senegal I've talked to, they know this. I absolutely love (laughs) Senegal. Uh, Other place, uh, the other place would probably be the Netherlands. Uh, Hmm. So those are the two places. I love the Netherlands too. It's my favorite country in Europe. Um, But Senegal, Dakar, favorite place I've ever been at in the world. Eventually we will end up there. (laughs) And, And hopefully we end up in the Netherlands too
0: um what's the appeal about obviously Dakar, but what's the appeal, uh, uh appeal with senegal as a country
1: uh when we went there it was just like people were so inviting and mm-hmm. and so like it felt like it felt like home like
2: mm. uh
1: I have stories upon stories. I, I just couldn't stop writing about Senegal. But we went to this wedding, and this is pre-COVID. It,
2: mm-hmm.
1: I think it's called Chebuchen. We, we, went into, we went into this wedding, and our Airbnb host invited us. And when we got there, we, we don't speak Wolof or, or French. And mm-hmm. they gave us a spoon, and we sat around, and we ate together like out of the same big
2: mm-hmm.
1: bowl of of food mm-hmm. and at the end of it um our host she looked up at us and she said you are my brother you are my sister black is beautiful and you are black and that was so incredibly powerful it made me feel so at home uh, everyone we came across mm-hmm. um was so so incredibly inviting and, and, and nice even mm-hmm. with uh, us struggling to converse.
0: Um, was, so I love it.
1: Was this your first
0: was this your first experience in Africa or had you been somewhere else?
1: No, nah, no, nah, we've been in in, in uh, several places in, in South Africa. That's a whole other beast. We've been to Ghana, which mm-hmm. was also a great experience. We've been to Tanzania, Zanzibar, Morocco yeah. Uh, different places all around Africa, but
2: you, you uh, made
1: Senegal Sen- felt Sen- good. Go ahead. So so did oh. Ghana, like all of those pl- different places. They, <laughs> they, they, they feel they feel good. Uh, and you know, one of these days, somewhere in Africa, we're going to we're going to live somewhere in Africa. But,
0: you just go go ahead to get your piece of land. You may <laughs> it, call it the return for real. Yes, <laughs> for real. <laughs> like yeah.
1: Yeah, Senegal, Senegal was, was the place that, uh, and I guess we stayed there the longest, too. We were there for mm-hmm. like 12 days.
2: Mm.
0: Last question. If you weren't an educator, what would you do?
1: Man, I had the perfect response to this before. Was it was be not be a travel agent. <laughs> Oh, no, <laughs> but not, not me- these COVID streets. Not anymore. Like I don't. I don't want to be a travel agent anymore. Uh, I don't know. Like it, it. used to be a writer. Like, um. But I don't know if I want to write anymore. Um, I I don't know. Maybe counseling or or therapy because I think a lot of the work that I do is healing work, and I try to make it about sustaining people's well-being, even as an educator, mm. uh, I could easily see myself going into counseling or therapy because that, that's a great joy that I have is to, like freedom work is, is self-care work and healing work, uh, and community healing work, uh, not just for the self, uh, for the community. Uh, so even living internationally that's what drives a lot of the diversity equity and inclusion work is to help us rehumanize ourselves and, and not just bipoc a black indigenous people of color but white folks also need to heal from these systems too uh, so that to me is what probably what i i guess i would do i don't know Part part of me i don't know wants to once it's just chill and relax and not be a part <laughs> of the grind culture anymore. And and I think that's gonna be a reality soon soon enough where we just chill and relax and not grind it out. Like sometimes rest is important uh, mm-hmm. or not sometimes, rest is important all of the time. Um, yeah. So part of me wants to digest from all of this. So what I would do if I wasn't teaching, nothing.
2: <laughs> create
1: art, <laughs> create art, and not depend on anybody else for my financial means.
0: And be on a beach in Senegal. I got you. <laughs>
1: Look, but, but since, <laughs> do you really? I, I well, understand. But Senegal got a lot of sand. But like, I, I didn't mind it there it's just the people that
2: you feel at home.
0: Oh, my gosh. Darnell, thank you so much for your time. I, I I love the passion for the work that you're doing. And, man, you are one of the people that I know that's in this DEI space in the international school realm. And I just appreciate you taking time to come hang out today. No
1: problem. Thanks for inviting me, Amanda.
0: Yeah, this is this is this is good. We We, we got to keep having these conversations. So We'll make sure that if anyone wants to follow up with Darnell, we're going to have the links in our show notes. And of course, they're going to be up on our various podcast platforms, including YouTube. The Global Chatter from the Black Expat is hosted by me, Amanda Bates. It is executive produced by Justin Williams. You can find all episodes of The Global Chatter on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen
2: to your podcast.